The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Root of the Rock on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Your Excellency, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. On our last episode of Root of the Raw, we talked a little bit about the forces of organized naturalism. And what you will find in our discussions is you is the, is the feeling of being completely present within the context of what we're discussing, which is to say, when we were discussing Charlemagne or what was happening in the medieval church, or even what was happening in the French Revolution, those are things that are removed from us, and we always need the explanation of historical context. But what I think is particularly helpful for His Excellency to comment on today is not the historical happenings necessarily because we're more acquainted with them as moderns, but what the deeper implications are for us long term. And I suppose as I was preparing for today's episode, Your Excellency, I can't help but, but have that feeling of inevitability that we're in the end times. And I, I know that you know, many saints have felt this. I know that the apostles felt this. You know, the apostles were, were rushing to evangelize the world so that they could bring, they could bring um, judgment forward. But I, I really feel sometimes as, I, as I'm, I'm reading and preparing for the episodes that, you know, how much, you know, how much, how much worse can it get? And, and I suppose as long as we have access to mass, uh, it, it really isn't that bad in some ways. I think we're somewhat shielded from the worst case scenario because you have people who get, who get to come to mass. Maybe they have to drive three or four hours, but no one's preventing them from going to mass. It's not illegal to say mass. So in, in some ways, yes, things are worse than they've ever been, but in other ways, we're still shielded from the worst case scenario. Yes, we, we still have the freedom to survive. That we have, and that's all we have. And that's all we can work on right now because we don't have the means to solve the problem in the church until God sees the the wisdom of, you know, if it is within his wisdom, uh, of giving someone who has the Catholic faith the authority to rule the church. You know, so we're waiting for that, but, you know, that may never come. Uh, the uh, The fact that you would bring this up at the beginning... The um, I think that we are in a, a period of, of preparation or an advent for Antichrist, and that certain things are being permitted for that reason. The, the ultimate mystery, everyone says, you know, how could God permit this? Well, the ultimate mystery is, well, how could God permit the Antichrist? <laughs> Why does that pertain to his glory? Uh, because he cannot will anything except what pertains to his glory. So we have to ask that question first. And and the the Antichrist is permitted in order to make a glorious manifestation of Christ's authority uh, over a world that is totally corrupt uh, and which has utterly rejected him to to intervene in a dramatic way to come and judge it. And uh, so all the predictions are that humanity will not end well. It will end badly. <laughs> it's not going to be a Hollywood movie where everything turns out right at the end. It's, it, and everyone will be waiting for Christ to come and, and will will praise him when he arrives. It's going to end badly, and it's going to be a very, very 
uh, severe accusation of humanity at the end. So that that's the first mystery. I mean, that's actually a much greater mystery than what we're living through now. The, the, but given that mystery of the Antichrist, uh, obviously, like everything, there has to be a preparation. Things don't happen overnight. And I think that the permission of this problem in the church is in view of the Antichrist, because I don't think that you could have gotten humanity uh, on a level of error and corruption that it is today and will become in, in decades to come, except with the defection of most Catholics from the Catholic faith. And I don't think you could have achieved the defection of most Catholics from the Catholic faith without some phony in the Vatican who is feeding Catholics a false religion. That's, that's my theory, that mm. all of this is permitted in view of the coming Antichrist. Well, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it, cer- it certainly does. Well, and I, I, I'm thinking you're, you've, you've provoked a, a quote that I have a, a little bit later in my show plan, uh, but it, it's, it was that we need, we need a, a, a pope who we, – we need someone to call a council so that they may uh, consecrate – Consecrate ecumenism. Jean uh, Baudouin. There it is. Yeah, know <laughs> the quote. Thank you, Excellency. Can say it for you. <laughs> he was an ecumenical maniac. Okay, and I, I think that that pertains directly to your point that that this is the best way to inject it is is through is through authority. Now, yes. to, to pick up to pick up where we left off on our last episode, I want to remind our listeners we were talking about this this new United Nations type. Uh, religion, essentially. It may not be called a religion anymore, but it's, it's the religion of man, humanitarianism, which has two central doctrines, the denial of, of a transcendent God and the affirmation of an imminent God. Now, what do we mean when we say an imminent God, Your Excellency? It means, well, first, transcendent. Uh, it's the opposite of transcendent. Transcendent is a God who, although present to all created things, is infinitely distinguished from them and distant from them because he is uh, 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 the ultimate being, the supreme being, and we are creatures. So that that is a a tremendous chasm. It's an infinite chasm. And therefore he lives in a different order, the supernatural order. And in that sense, all things are different about him. Uh, And he doesn't change and, and... uh, so that means dogmas don't change. Humanity doesn't change. Uh, it's all fixed and perfect, you see, because he is. But an imminent God is a God that is identified with, the, as St. Pius X says, the human subconscious, that, that he is active in human beings. Now, this is apart from grace or anything, just that he is part of the 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 human world uh, as an essential element of the human world. And therefore, he, he becomes different as hum, human beings become different. Uh, and, and so he's a, 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 it's essentially pantheism. Uh, the, the, he's like a world spirit. Um, and, and we must be, uh, for example, Bergoglio says we have to have this, this experience of God, this experience of Jesus. Uh, as if there's something in us to to find uh, that 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 we turn on to. Uh, that that's the idea of an imminent God. It's it's pantheism, and it's necessarily tied to evolutionism because as human beings change, obviously God changes and religion changes. And so any religion that wants to remain static is problematic because it. it uh, denies a fundamental reality, and that is that God is identified with the human race. Well, and if, if humanitarian, humanitarianism has two doctrines, which is the denial of a transcendent God and the affirmation of an imminent God, it also has two purposes, which is to transform existing religions so that they all profess the same imminentist humanitarian creed, and that they set aside 
the dogmatic differences, as Father Chicada often says on Francis Watch, don't mind this, don't sweat the salt, small stuff, and it's all small stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, so the if God is identified with the human race and the, the human consciousness, uh, then the uh, objective creeds become meaningless. See, so we can all agree to disagree. We all have a religious experience. We all see God a little differently. Uh, but uh, at the same time, we are all experiencing the same person, the same thing. And therefore, uh, our creeds really don't make a difference. Uh, we, you know, it's, it's like flavors of ice cream. It's all the same ice cream, it's just a different flavor. Uh, and therefore, they should set aside dogmatic differences and, and unite and amalgamate and, and realize uh, what, is, what is unifying in them and, and not accentuate any, any dogmatic or liturgical differences. You know. That's uh, the uni- unity and diversity, as Ratzinger said. So yes. that, that is the goal of the modern world, is to create this religion. Uh, and it will fit hand in hand with uh, glove in hand with the uh, a world republic. That is where different the nation state will be set aside, and there will be a, a world government and a world republic with a one world religion. Now that doesn't mean that everyone will recite the same creed, but it will be a a, a generality of of religion in the sense that everyone will will adhere to the same basic humanitarian creedless religion uh and uh no one will criticize anybody else everyone is one and you know we're all in communion with everybody else so you know you shouldn't think of a disappearance of all churches and religions but they will all have something in common and will profess in that sense the same creed that we all that essentially none of us has a creed that we believe that will be the creed <laughs> well, we don't really believe it, it. <laughs> well it, and if you have a, a new religion you have to have apostles or catechists of that religion and, and it might be time to introduce some of our listeners to these names the first of which might be a gentleman named Schleiermacher and apart from pronouncing the name I suppose directly could you tell us a bit about what this what this man professed yes he was the uh, founder of what is known as liberal Protestantism, a founder. He, he was uh, the main spokesman for it, and he was uh, he was active in the 1820s, 1830s in Germany uh, when all of this was breaking out. And he said that uh, that religion is uh, a, a, an experience of God. That that it, it is something totally uh, interior and. Uh, the religious experience is is religion. That that there is no objectivity to it. That everyone has his own religious experience, and therefore uh, religion is 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 something that is confined to the interior. Uh, so obviously that that <laughs> fits right in with everything we're saying. That's known as liberal Catholic, uh, liberal Protestantism, and uh, it was very popular. Uh, it, it, um, uh, it, there was a reaction to it. There, you know, something called Orthodox Protestantism uh, reacted to it. Uh, but uh, it's still very much alive. It, it is the, it is, that is the essential idea of modern religion, is that it is an interior experience. Uh, some people have it, some people don't. And the creeds and rites and everything else that come from that experience are personal, and well, yes, you might uh, organize yourself into a religion if you have similar experiences, uh, but uh, it's all personal. There's, there's nothing objective about it. So that, that's Schleiermacher. He was the founder of what will ultimately become modernism. You see, the, the uh, Saint Pius X said one of the ingredients of modernism is immanentism. And that's precisely what it is, that God is in everybody, revealing himself in a different way to everybody, each person having a different religious experience. He says that in Pashen. Side by side with that, we have what is known as biblical rationalism. Can you tell us about that, Yankin Biblical rationalism is to uh, 
treat the Holy Bible as if it were just an ordinary book, as if it were the writings of uh, some, uh, you know, Herodotus or Thucydides, some some ancient historian, and uh, it, it proceeds from uh, rationalism, obviously, which is to say that anything supernatural, anything that is beyond the reach of the explanation of reason, doesn't exist. So they would go through and uh, look at all the books and say, well, this is a miracle, that, that couldn't exist. There must be a rational explanation for this. A famous case is the crossing of the Red Sea. The, it, it says clearly in, in, Gen- in Exodus that the, the sea opened up and there was dry land and that the sea made two walls on either side of them. Uh, which was shown very well in the movie with Charlton Heston, by the way. Mm. And that the Jews passed through this this wall of water on either side and over the dry land and made it to the other side. And that the Egyptians arrived and wanted to attack the Jews. They uh, went through this, this dry land that was uh, where the two walls of water were. And as they passed through, the walls of water collapsed upon them, and they all drowned. Now, that's explicit in Exodus. Well, the, the rationalists say, no, 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 no. There was a swamp. The, the, the Red Sea, where they crossed, was just a swamp, and the wind came, because there's a mention of a wind. The wind came and, and parted the waters enough for them to wade through the swamp. That's that's biblical rationalism. Now, how you drown a whole army of charioteers in a swamp is, you know, how that happened. But they, they would just assign that to the imagination of the Hebrews because they, they say that Moses didn't write all of this down. No, 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 no. This was written down many, many centuries later because they're all fireside stories. The Hebrews would sit down at night and have dinner and sit around the fire, and they would do these stories, and eventually somebody wrote them down. So these are all embroidered, enhanced stories. That's biblical rationalism. They go through the entire book with that, the entire book, including the New Testament, disparaging every single miracle, anything supernatural at all, and reducing sacred scripture to merely a a storybook. Well, and once you once you tear down these dogmas, you you get to a complete change, even within Protestantism. Protestantism, which had some some dogmas from from whatever they adhered to, we now create an entire branch of Protestantism that that doesn't uh, adhere to this at all. So we have uh, two types of Protestant churches: the ones that are more of the Rick Warren purpose-driven life, feel good church, megachurch, and you have the hardcore fundamentalist Protestants, which, again, uh, they have all of the problems that the the Protestant revolt brings with them, but they still do hold to some doctrines and, 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 uh, and some beliefs. Now, in your own experience, Your Excellency, having you know, I wouldn't say worked in this field, but you you've dealt with converts who've come over, and you're exp- you're you're observing what's happening. What would you say is the branch that's growing? If if we if we and again, it's sort of a a very crude division between let's say dogmaless Protestantism and sola scriptura Protestantism. But what do you think has more allure at the present time? What's growing more? Oh, definitely uh, what we'd call Orthodox uh, Protestantism, uh, fundamentalism, evangelism, whatever you want to call it. That is, those, that branch of, of Protestants that adhere to some basic doctrines. It's totally inconsistent with their principles that they adhere to certain dogmas. Uh, totally, because the, you know, if you can pick up the scriptures and decide whatever you want, who makes the dogmas then? But Protestants realized as time went on that they had to come up with some dogmas, otherwise the whole thing would be a mess. So the, that, that is a tradition in Protestantism, uh, totally inconsistent with their principles, but nonetheless there. Uh, they, I, you know, it's funny that you bring this up because there was just an article in the news yesterday or the day before uh, how uh, 
America is becoming less Christian. And I was looking at the statistics, and I think there was uh, twice as many adherents to the evangelical Protestantism as to the mainstream. The mainstream Protestantism, which is the feel-good, uh, self-help, uh, dogmaless Protestantism, is doing really badly, and that there's no young people in their congregations, and that you know it, it's really winding up. Uh, the, whereas evangelicals, uh, I, I, it was almost twice, I would say, you know, the uh, the amount of <clears throat> among the Protestants, uh, twice the number adhere to uh, the evangelical. Um, the um, I would say this too. I mean, certainly you know, we are not the, the the condition of traditional Catholicism is quite different from Protestantism because. Catholicism works on authority, so we have a, a very hard time uh, convincing Catholics that they uh, cannot put any trust in the what appears to be the authority of the Church. Uh, and we're very insistent about pointing that out, but it's it's a very difficult step for a Catholic to say, you know, Bergoglio, who is in a white cassock and in the Vatican, is not in fact the Roman Pontiff. That is a big, big step. And they need a lot of homework uh, to do a lot of homework in order to come to that. So, you know, we don't have the same kind of appeal. A, a, a Protestant is free to join whatever church he wants. <laughs> you know, so th- there's nothing holding them back. But the Catholics have, a, you know, that big hurdle to to get over if they want to react properly to the modernist problem. So, but I would say this: that the people who are interested in what we are doing are the young people. The old people who were young at the time of Vatican II have completely gone over to Vatican II, and they love it. It is the young people that find it shallow, and either they don't go or they are going to some form of tradition. Um, Very few, and relatively few, fall into the middle camp of being ardent and and, uh, ardent novus ordites. Relatively few. Either they they just don't bother with the Catholic or the Nova Sorda religion at all, or they are interested in some form of tradition. They may not make it as far as as saying Bergoglio is not a true pope and Vatican II is something evil, but they at least see something definitely wrong with Vatican II and wrong with with everything that has happened since Vatican II. And you know, I think that's significant. I just was talking to a young man the other day, 17 years old, and he said to me, the first time I went to the Motu Mass, I was just aghast. He he said to himself, what have we lost? What are we missing? How could this have disappeared from the Catholic Church? Hmm. (laughs) And and (laughs) nobody had to tell him anything. He he was just uh, in shock. And I'm not quite quite old as dirt yet, Your Excellency, but I do remember being 17 and having that same reaction. Yes. Now, as yes. you say, as the transformation occurs uh, and, and this new religion is created, humanitarianism, something that we're in the year 2015 quite, quite well acquainted with, even though we don't necessarily know it as a, a constructed religion, it's more of this inchoate force. The movement in the early time even took some modernists by surprise, and I thought it was revealing to see a quote from uh, Monsignor Duchesne uh, writing to uh, Father Loisy. If people pay attention to what you say, quite a number of questions in the catechism will have to be suppressed as being indiscreet. The faithful will wonder what this new religion is. In 50 years' time, so I am told, everyone will find these ideas natural, possibly, but will this everyone still be Christian? Now, I, this is remarkable for two reasons. One, because of the time that this was put out, this was 1903, when this insight, but that it's coming from Duchenne. So I, if you could put both of those uh, items in context for us, Your Excellency. Yes, Duchenne was a modernist historian uh, who, whose works were put on the index, and uh, I'll tell you, there's a footnote to that too, and uh, he was uh, talking about Loisy. He's talking to Loisy. Loisy is the is an arch modernist. He's like the Luther of modernism. And uh, he was excommunicated by Pius X. 
and and you know if you say modernism, Loisy comes up as the first name. So uh, so Duchenne himself <laughs> say to Loisy, I mean, what are you doing? Uh, you know, you, do you realize the implications of what you're saying? And certainly Loisy did. But I think Duchenne uh, was taken aback by some of Loisy's statements. And I, I love that 50 years, that's 1903, that means 1953, very close to, the, to Vatican II. Uh, that he wasn't too far off in saying, you know, you're going to transform Catholicism into something non-Christian. It's it, it's chilling words, uh, and you know from the horse's mouth that is from the how, the mouth um, the mouth of a of a modernist himself to another modernist. I think it's very very significant. Um, and uh, now the footnote is that Roncalli, who later became John the Twenty Third, was uh, teaching history in uh, the uh, the seminary of. Uh, Bergamo, and he was reported to the Vatican as using Duchenne, and he went and, and swore to Cardinal Delay that he had never even read Duchenne. Not only was he not using him, and you know it was obviously false, but uh, Duchenne uh, put in his file suspect of modernism, uh, and uh, John the Twenty Third discovered that in his file after he was uh, elected, the, you know, in 1958. So, uh, but that you know, that's uh, just a footnote to that. So, um, <clears throat> uh, I, I think it's a, a very, very uh, pertinent quote. Uh, they knew what they were doing, and uh, they got what they wanted in Vatican II. Well, and side by side with that, we have a quote from from George Terrell, who was also excommunicated. Uh, as as was Loisy, it is not as they suppose about this or that article of the creed that we differ. We accept it all, but it is the word credo, the sense of true as applied to dogma. The whole value of revelation is at stake, and he is right. Yes, that the that the if you take out the sense of the word credo of adherence to truth, then you could say whatever you want. <laughs> That's like taking all the teeth out of the lion. That that if you don't uh, if you don't adhere to these as immutable truths revealed by God, well, then the credo means nothing. And and that's where we are. I mean, today Bergoglio is saying there's no hell. That people who are divorced and remarried should be able to receive Holy Communion. That uh, who am I to judge on questions of priests having homosexual relations with other priests? And that uh, people who are living together in fornication, well, they they should be able to go to communion too. Uh, you have these blatant violations of of truth and revealed truth uh, and the creed itself, and nobody cares uh, because the teeth have all come out. <laughs> there is no credo. Uh, the you know, those things can change just as easily uh, as anything else. Uh, as uh, I think I said in another show, I think if if a woman were ordained, if Bergoglio ordained a woman tomorrow, I think most Novus Ordites would say, well, that's fine. You know, why shouldn't women have access to the priesthood? I think most of them would, would totally accept it. And and I always thought that would be the the... The point of no return for an awful lot of people, but I don't think it is anymore. I, I think we're going to see that, and that's because the the teeth have come out of the credo, that there is no adherence to truth in the credo. It's, it's just a see in the modernist system, a creed is just a way of saying what the present uh, religious experience is. It's a um, just a signpost, you know, this, this is what we're believing today. It is, is not something immutable. It, it's just our experience today. And that's how they, they explain away the whole, all of Catholic tradition. Well, the Council of Trent was true for its time. Well, this declaration was true for its time. That's how they saw things at that time. But human beings change, and we have changed, and we must uh, move. So that's well, and I, how the, the Novus Ordo operates on that system. 
Well, and I was going to say, Earthly, is the pragmatism of the boil of the boiled frog. Uh, I, when I was in the Novus Ordo sect myself, you know, I was always saying, well, you know, if they allow women priests, I'm out of here, or I'll know that it's 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 the wrong thing. You're always drawing these red lines in the sand, but people don't realize that this is a problem. If you're having to draw these red lines, what is this telling you? <laughs> uh, if you're if you're threatening about future references, it shows you that you're on shifting sands. Yes, uh, yes, and uh, and really, you're making your own religion because why do you draw that line? Yeah, you don't. Have, yeah, the, the the church removes that that need for you to do that because everything's already handled and set for you. Yeah, uh, we, we we see another quote uh, from Vin, Vincenzo Gioberti, uh, who was around mm-hmm. from 1801 to 1852, and he says Catholicism will gradually transform itself and realize all possible hopes based on it. The exterior form of worship will last forever, like the hierarchy, and as the Church is master of the sacraments and its orders, it will alter both hierarchy and forms of worship to suit the times. The hierarchy will become simpler and more liberal. We can get rid of Monsignors, for example. The forms of worship more, quote-unquote, spiritual, and thus it will become Protestantism, but a gradual Orthodox Protestantism, without anything violent, aggressive, revolutionary, or insubordinate about it. A Protestantism, a Protestantism that will destroy neither the apostolic continuity of the priesthood nor the essence of the liturgy. A new age is to begin for Rome, an age of great ideas and theology, an age of civilization and of tolerance. And this, uh, for those of you who are interested in looking this up, this comes from a text called The Catholic Modernists. And you can find that uh, Oxford University Press printed that in 1969. The quote I just read Uh, came from page 99 of the 1969 edition. It is a shocking quote. Yes, he was a fallen-away priest uh, who was um, an ontologist, which was condemned by the Catholic Church, uh, uh, an error which said that uh, we have uh, an an intuitive knowledge of God, that that we know we have essentially the beatific vision in us. I mean, I won't go into it now, but... It was condemned by the Catholic Church. He was a liberal in the time of the Risorgimento, and uh, he was uh, very much involved in the government of uh, Piedmont, which was the author of all of the anti-Catholic and Freemasonic uh, machinations against uh, Pope Pius IX and Pope Gregory XVI. And uh, so, he, you know, he knows what he's talking about. This is the program and he's just reflecting what all of them thought at the time, that Catholicism cannot stay the same. It's got to, uh, to change itself according to the dictates of liberalism in the modern world, that Catholicism will not survive unless it changes itself into what he just described. Uh, Rosmini said something very similar, not quite as, as radical as what Gioberti said. But Rosmini said something very similar. This has been a, a theme in variations for over a century, decade upon decade. People saying this, you've got to change, you've got to change. Uh, it, you, the church won't survive unless you change. And, of course, we're seeing that the <laughs> droves of people losing the faith and not bothering with church at all, the, the, and the faith being rotted out uh, uh, right at the top, and, you know, whereas before the council, conversions were, were very, very high. The church was in relatively perfect condition. Uh, I mean, I, I, I won't take the time to go into that, but you know, the whole beautiful building was blown up by Vatican II with this principle that you've got to change the church to fit the modern world. And it has been just like a Hiroshima for the Catholic Church. You, we, we said in the beginning of the episode, and we want to remind our, our listeners, you're listening to Root of the Rot on the Restoration Radio Network. Uh, I am Stephen Heiner, and I'm with His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn. We want to remind you that Root of the Rot is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Actually, at the beginning of the episode, we talked about the fact that the goal of humanitarianism is to transform religions uh, that exist in the world to remove their doctrinal differences. And, of course, we know this is ecumenism today, but one of the things that we, we, we didn't, uh, I would say most people don't know about unless they've studied the Oxford movement or have some familiarity with John Henry Newman, Cardinal Newman, 
is this notion of the branch theory, which in a way is proto-ecumenism because it still professes some sort of link with Catholicism as as the uh, as one of the one of the foundations of truth, obviously incorrectly. But can you explain to people what the branch theory is and how it laid the path for ecumenism? Yes, it was the uh, the child of Pusey, who was the one that established high, high Anglicanism in England during the 1850s uh, and uh, or. 40s to uh, Newman's time, the Oxford Movement time. And you see, the Oxford Movement had two branches. One was the branch of conversion, which was Newman's branch, and, and Father Faber and, and others who followed him. Uh, and uh, uh, the uh, other was to transform the Church of England into something that could amalgamate with the Catholic Church. Pusey's idea was fix up the Church of England in such a way that it regains its liturgical past and its dogmatic past, and then go to Rome and say, look, uh, let's have an amalgamation of these two churches because we are where we should be. We've cleaned up our act. Uh, We are the English church the way it was before the Reformation, and why don't you just take us? And that was Pusey's idea, so he worked on that. Uh, However, it developed into something called the branch theory. The branch theory held that the, uh, the, the church, the church consisted of uh, the Church of Christ, had three branches, the uh, Eastern Orthodox, the Anglicans, and the Romans, and that uh, these three branches made up the true Church of Christ, and therefore they should all be in communion with one another. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> of course... Uh, and so they made all of these approaches to Rome that, you know, you really should get on board with this branch theory, and uh, Rome wanted nothing to do with it at all. And But this was the, the beginning of the of the um, of ecumenism. It was condemned uh, in uh, 1865 by Cardinal Patrizzi, uh, and uh, the, um, uh, you know, he, he's... Uh, was very, very clear about the fact that this is something which undermines the very nature of the Catholic Church. Uh, and uh, that uh, he says, for example, <clears throat> I love this uh, quote, uh, there is no opinion which is more at variance with the genuine notion of the Catholic Church. This branch theory, that you could have a communion where there is no uh, unity of faith, and there's no unity of government. He, he says for, and he quotes St. Paul, for the Catholic Church is that which, built upon a single rock, rises up into one coherent body and is held together by unity of faith and charity. That's the Catholic Church. Some sort of amalgam uh, of a bunch of churches that disagree in liturgy and doctrine and everything else, and many other things, uh, glued together, is not the is not the the Church of Christ. It is, and as he says, there is no opinion which is more at variance with the genuine notion of the Catholic Church. Yet this is what Vatican II has proposed to us. Well, and and you you can see the the road to subsiste in is paved by precedents such as the Branch Theory. Yes. Yes, that that instead of saying the, the the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church, the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. It means those are two different things. Is is a beautiful word. <laughs> so easy for everybody to understand. Subsists in means that the Church of Christ is something other than the than the Catholic Church and that it has some relationship to the Catholic Church, but it is not the same thing. And it, it permits people to say, well, it can consist in other things, too. And to this day, the Nova Sordo has never explained what that means. Uh, we, we, and, could, and we, it, could, we might say that Est is a Sanbornian formulation and subsisti in is an anti-Sanbornian uh, uh, formulation. Well, it is. It's Pius XII. <laughs> He's a mystic <laughs> So, so it, you know, he said it before I did. Uh, and that 
particular phrase was chosen purposely in order to leave the ecumenical door open, if you look at the history of that document. So we, we don't just have the branch theory as paving the way. We also have events that would pave the way for Assisi. A lot of people look at 1986 and they think, wow, this, this has never happened before. But actually, Your Excellency, there have been other incidents, and, and you've related one to me before. Can you tell us about Leo XIII, Monsignor Satoli, and the Chicago Columbus Exhibition of 1892, which was quite a bit before 1986? Yes, uh, there was a World Parliament of Religions to be held in Chicago. And uh, Cardinal Gibbons, who was a liberal, and now when I say, you know, today that word means more than it did then, he was a person that was accommodating to the modern world, Cardinal Gibbons. He's very famous. Um, He's the one that wrote the, the words to Faith of Our Fathers, and he bragged about that him that there is nothing in it that would offend a Protestant. Uh, and um, uh, the uh, so and he used to ha- he used to go around when he was the bishop of uh, I think Charleston, uh, somewhere in the south. He used to go around and preach in Protestant churches. Uh, now he was one of these. Uh, people that uh, would like to entice Protestants by being nice to them and by uh, you know, saying things that, that, are, that we have in common with them. I mean, in the sense that uh, uh, suppressing Catholic dogmas or speaking of expressing the uh, talk about Catholic dogmas in order to emphasize what we have in common. That, that was typical of Gibbons. He was uh, uh, definitely a liberal liberal. Uh, and uh, so he wanted to go and do this very thing with a bunch of other religions and represent the represent the Catholic Church there. And uh, so uh, he got permission from Leo the Thirteenth to do that, and uh, you know, which is a shock. But you know, Leo himself was in the practical order, although he was wonderful in the theoretical order. In the practical order, he did permit certain things that would raise our eyebrows. Let's put it that way. And so uh, you had Gibbons up on a stage with all sorts of other religions. Um, uh, he uh, he was uh, he shared being chief moderator with uh, uh, the Presbyterian Church, uh, and uh, he recited the Our Father together with Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus. Uh, all <laughs> so this cardinal of the church. Uh, is doing this uh, this ecumenical act, and then he gives an apostolic blessing at the conclusion of the whole thing. I mean, that's 1892 or 93. I'm not sure. Uh, I think it was 93. I think the Parliament of Religions was in 93, but it was the the um, the Chicago Exposition in 1892 that opened in 1892. So well, uh, Bishop Sanborn's big on looking things up. So if you want to follow up on, he's you know this isn't something we're making up. The the, the book is called The Catholic Church in the Modern World. It was published in 1960, and the uh, the account that we're speaking about uh, happened on. Uh, you can find it recounted on pages 170 through 171. The author's name is Hales. E E Y Hales. H A L E S is the last name. Yes. So uh, ecumenism has a history. It has a history in the Catholic Church. Uh, you had uh, Cardinal um, Mercier, who had the Moline Conference in the 1920s, I think it was, uh, and uh, with this attempt to dialogue with Anglicans and all. It has a history. Uh, it ha- there has always been in the Church, since the French Revolution, people who are... are uh, we want to see the church compromise with freedom of thought, essentially. Uh, compromise with it. They're, they're not necessarily heretics, but they, you know, the fact that they would even consider ecumenism shows that they are mixed up, to the, at the very least, with regard to what Catholic truth is. How can Catholic truth be ecumenical? What, what do you say to a Protestant ex- except to explain to him why he should be Catholic? Why is a discussion or a dialogue productive? There is a single thing, and that is to have him abandon his heresy and to point out to him why he is in error and to have him embrace the Catholic faith. So uh, 
but you know, it's very, it's, very negative of you, Your Excellency. Very negative. <laughs> it's proselytizing, and we know from Bergoglio that proselytism is pure nonsense or all nonsense. <laughs> solemn, solemn nonsense. Solemn nonsense. Solemn nonsense. Yes. Uh, the, um, uh, but it, it's com- it's absolutely compatible and and even necessary for the uh, Catholic Church. That same author uh, says. Uh, uh, the um, that uh, that if you soft pedal some articles of faith so, so as to not give offense, uh, that this would be contrary to the the gospel itself, and and it would be lead to indifferentism, which was uh, condemned by Saint, by Pius the Ninth. And he says such an attitude is heretical because it denies the unique and divine nature of the Church. I mean, I couldn't say it any better. The the and you know that's just a, a layperson and an author and he's a liberal. E. E. Y. Hales is a liberal. He he hails all of the not not to make a pun, but he hails all of this development of liberalism in the church. But even he says that he recognizes that. How how can the the Catholic Church be ecumenical in any way? But nonetheless, you had these people all over the Catholic Church and in the hierarchy doing these things from early times. I mean, 1892, 1893, that's a long time ago. We think of, of, of the state of the church in, in, in a uh, pristine condition, but it had rats in the hole. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and they emerged in Vatican II. The, the rats uh, got onto the deck. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and, at the rudder and, and at the steering wheel. <laughs> absolutely. And in our next episode, we're going to talk about one of those those arch rats himself, Paul the Sixth, and his furthering of the the Church of Humanitarianism and ecumenical mania. But I think today it might do well for us seriously to close with a more minor character. And I had alluded to him uh, earlier in the episode, Don Baudouin. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his role? Uh, within within the ecumenical movement, I think that'll be a good place for us to end our episode today. Yes, he was a uh, a Benedictine monk in Belgium, uh, which, by the way, was the source of a lot of this stuff. Mercier was the the uh, cardinal uh, archbishop of Malines, which is Belgium too. Uh, Louvain was uh, that's the pontifical university in Belgium that was always very liberal. Um. So he's there in Belgium. He, he, this person is obsessed with ecumenism, Baudouin. Uh, he uh, wanted to, he saw the changing of the liturgy as a way in which to promote ecumenism. And uh, he also was the author of the idea that the mystical body of Christ was something greater than the Catholic Church. And that the the reason is that humanity is a body, and Christ became man. Therefore, he's attached to all humanity in the mystical body. This is something that uh, John Paul II said in Redemptor Hominis, which was his first encyclical, that all humanity belongs to Christ in, in virtue of the incarnation. See that that he has attached himself to every man. That, that's to quote uh, John Paul II. He has attached himself to every man in virtue of the incarnation. And so therefore you have this tremendous mystical body, uh, and uh, as, as John Paul II says, there are spheres of belonging to the church. It's like a sort of, we think of a, a target for, for bows and arrows. Uh, uh, the, that, uh, there are spheres of belonging to the church. The bullseye is you know, to actually become a Catholic, but there are other ways of belonging to the church. And and uh, so uh, that that's all in Baudouin. So in 1926, these are these are some notes that he wrote down, some thoughts. So they, this doesn't read very well. Uh, Humanity of Christ, exemplary cause, which contains under this heading all initiations which reflect it. Also under this heading, the humanity of Christ contains in it every individual humanity, and this is the true sense. Uh, of Corpus Christi Mysticum, that is the mystical body of Christ. Uh, in another place he says, explanation founded on the hypostatic union of the humanity of the word. Under this heading, the humanity of Christ acquires a universality communicated by the logos to the flesh which he has assumed. 
from there a certain incorporation of every individual in uh, in the humanity of Christ. See, <clears throat> so the uh, that the John Paul II will pick that up that that the by the incarnation everyone's attached to Christ. The traditional doctrine is you become attached to Christ by baptism. See, by by uh, having the blood of Christ flow on you in in the waters of baptism, that's how you are attached to Christ. That uh, although everyone is called to the Catholic Church, you are not incorporated into Christ except by admission to the Catholic Church and adherence to the Catholic Church. Are you saying that many yes. are called but few are chosen, Your Excellency? Well, it, uh, that's, uh, that would take about another 20 minutes to explain. But uh, everyone, yes, it's true that all men are called to salvation. That is true. God wills the salvation of all men. Uh, St. Paul said that. Uh, but it is not true that all men will make it. You see, there are the elect and there are the reprobate, and uh, only the elect will make it to heaven. Uh, so not all men will be saved. Some will go to hell, even though Bergoglio says hell doesn't exist. Uh, the, the, some will go to hell. Uh, and, and the fathers say, uh, the majority and great majority opinion of the fathers is that more people will end up in hell than in heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, on that happy note, uh, your Excellency might uh, end our episode today. Thanks so much for, for joining us. We look forward to our next episode in the series. We're drawing to an end. Root of the Raw, we only have a few more, couple more episodes left. But as we say, next next episode, we'll get into one of these apostles of the new religion of humanitarianism, Paul VI. And we look forward to having your, your commentary and thoughtfulness uh, once again. Your Thanks so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.